You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. Thursday, August 16th, this is The Christian Commute. I am your host, Seth Dunn, and you are riding with me, not home, no, no, I'm going to go home, but first... I'm going to Dubs High on the Hog Barbecue. Yep, it's Dubs Thursday, which has replaced Dubs Wednesday because now I work at home on Wednesday. So I'm going to Dubs on Dubs Thursday. It's going to be good. They used to have a wonderful special there price-wise, but inflation took it out, so I don't know what I'm going to order. And uh, I'm still looking forward to it. So I hope to do the Bible chapter review on the way there. I don't know if I'll get to the question. I'll probably just do the Bible chapter review and then pause the show. When I come back, you guys can expect it. I'm going to have a cup of half and half. Half and half. And if you're wondering if, I, if I'm one of these creation care Christians, <laughs> it's going to be a styrofoam cup because that's what keeps your sweet tea cold in a, on a hot day in the South. Can't beat it. All right. By the way, I, you know, I'm joking around about the creation care people, but we really do, as Christians, have the responsibility for stewardship of, of the earth. Just saying. Here's an interesting theological question. Do we have a responsibility for stewardship over Mars? I mean, could we just shoot our garbage on Mars in a rocket ship? I mean, it's the Earth, right? We have dominion on everything here. Just the rest of space. Can we just fill it? We could just shoot garbage rockets everywhere. A rocket full of styrofoam. How's that for taking dominion and creation care? Anyway, that's not what the show is about. Uh, Today's show title is the first one in a series. It's called Grave to Cradle. Grave to Cradle. And it's about... Pastoring or account management, all right? The Grave to Cradle series. So we're going to talk about how your church, or how a given church, relates to old people, middle-aged people, younger, I guess I'm middle-aged, like the 20-year-old people, youth, and children. We've talked a lot about age group segmentation from a Sunday school perspective. But now we're going to talk about it, say, from a church growth and church management perspective. Grave to cradle. I call it grave to cradle because I'm going to start with the old people. But today is the general introduction of the show topic. I have a question in the inbox that makes it a full show. This is a question about rebaptism. Not just rebaptism, but rebaptism in the Holy Land. When people take their Holy Land trip, when your pastor says, Hey, anybody got $8,000? We're taking a trip to the Holy Land, and it's only $8,000 per couple. Everybody sign up, but he's going for free. We're going to talk about that. That's the question rebaptism in the Holy Land. And as always, we have the Bible chapter review. We're in a new chapter. We're in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is transitioning from giving the Pharisees a bunch of woe to telling the disciples about the calamity of times to come. Now notice I didn't just say end times. I said times to come because some of this stuff has already happened. Some of this stuff will happen. And by the way, I am not a preterist. Preterism is heresy. But the preterists will camp out in these verses if they can. Alright, here we go. Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 2. Jesus left the temple area and was going on his ways when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. But he responded and said to them, do you not see all, or I'm sorry, do you see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn 
down. So what's going on here? Not just, not just Jesus, but a whole bunch of Jews are in town for Passover week. This is when Jews would come from all around and make a pilgrimage, if you will, to Jerusalem because it's one of their holy times, one of their festival times. The, Jew, the, the Jews now, they call these the high holy days. You know how Christians have CEOs, Christ, uh, Christmas and Easter only Christians, and they only go to Christmas on Christmas and Easter? Jews, Jews are the same way. They have Jews who only go to temple or synagogue on high holy days. Okay. So this is the Passover, the big deal. And there's a lot of people in town for Passover because we know Jesus is being crucified on Passover week. So these are people from out in the sticks, places like Nazareth, where Jesus is from, and now they're in the big city, and the big city is where the temple is. So you got to imagine they don't see the great buildings like this every day. This is like if one of us went to New York City, or if I went to Atlanta. There's skyscrapers in Atlanta. There's a restaurant that spins, all right? There's a giant Ferris wheel. You know, I used to work at George Pacific in a high-rise in Atlanta. Now I work at Dalton. On, we got two floors. So there, not only is there, like, impressive architecture, you can tell there's a lot of money spent. It's, it's I don't want to call it a hub of tourism, but it's a hub of their religion, not something they'd see every day. Jesus is, has been in the temple area teaching and being challenged by the Pharisees. And the disciples are saying, wow, Jesus, look at all these buildings around the temple. The temple area completed by Herod the Great. And as I've said on this podcast before, Herod was great, not because he was a good ruler, benevolent or merciful in any way. He's called Herod the Great because he was good at building buildings and building up cities and, and doing municipal projects. And one of Herod the Great's projects was the temple. Actually, I think the Herod the Great that did that had already died at this point. It's some other Herod who's the king. Anyway, they're looking at Herod's temple. This is what we call Herod's temple. So the original temple was built by Solomon because God wouldn't let David build it because David was a man of blood and war. So Solomon built the original temple which replaced the tabernacle that the Jews had been using since uh, the days of uh, the, uh, the Exodus and being in the wilderness, wandering in the wilderness. So Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. That temple was destroyed when the southern kingdom was destroyed and overrun uh, by the Babylonians. You remember the Assyrians sacked the northern kingdom and conquered that territory. The southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, held on. I think Benjamin was a part of the southern kingdom. Until eventually the Babylonians uh, attacked the city and carried the Jews off into captivity. Like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. So when Nehemiah and the exiles returned... Uh, after the Persian king gave them permission because the Persians took over the Babylonians. you got to know your ancient history, right? What they wanted to do was, with the permission of the Persian king, rebuild Jerusalem, including the walls and the temple. But the temple was never properly finished. Herod the Great finished the temple. So here they have this nice temple, which is this, uh, the center of the Jewish, when I say the Jewish cult, I mean the, the broad version of that, like every religion is a quote-unquote cult. You know, the cult is what they do. I'm not talking about cults when people put put uh, kids' tennis shoes on, or their kids are Nikes, and then kill themselves waiting for a comet to get them. I don't mean cult like that. But this was, the, the temple was the center of the Jewish religion, okay? And it's going to be impressive to Jesus' disciples. And they're saying, look! Look at all these buildings, Jesus. So we're here at the temple. And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you this. He says, Amen. Whenever you read in the Bible and he says, Truly I say to you, in the King James it's verily. In the Greek it's Amen. All right. So Jesus is saying, Take this to the bank. Um, it's, he's emphasizing it. Amen. Verily. Truly I say to you. Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. you got to understand, this is the center of their religion. 
And Jesus is saying, it's all going to be torn down. And I want you to pay attention to this spiritually, because I don't like to spiritualize things, but there's a spiritual aspect you have to pay attention to as we go through this story of Jesus' life. Jesus is about to be crucified. What happens when Jesus is crucified at the temple? The veil is rent that separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And we understand when we read the Bible that this is a miracle of God, that God is doing this, and there's some symbolism in what he's showing. In other words, boom, we all go into the Holy of Holies through Jesus because he's our high priest, and we don't need the temple on earth anymore. The sacrificial system has been fulfilled. The, the job of that high priest to go in there has been fulfilled. We are now connected to the Father through the Lord Jesus, and this separation is gone because the sins of all the elect have been paid for on the cross. All God's people have their sins paid for. There's no more There's no more this veil, which had always been there, even in the days of the tabernacle before the temple. There's always This veil is gone. It's been rent. So Jesus coming to Jerusalem and going to the, cro the cross is basically invalidating all of these buildings, all of this great architecture, the temple area, not only the temple building, but the area built up around it, is, is going to be unneeded spiritually. Anybody drive around their town and you see an abandoned mill? It was once a great building where lots of people worked and now it's empty. Or now post-COVID when everybody works from home, now you have all these empty office buildings and all these high-rises. Well, think about this. You have the temple. Solomon built it. And then Nehemiah tried to help rebuild it. And finally the Ijumean client, King Herod, finishes it. And it's the center of Jewish religious life. And Jesus is making it where why would anybody need to go here anymore? And not only is the veil going to be rent, and spiritually, if you will, the temple is going to be torn down because now we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Christians are individually because God tabernacles with us. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's also going to be physically destroyed. Boom. Jesus is predicting that. Now we know that happens later in 70 AD under the Roman general Titus because the Jews once again rebelled against Rome. They want independent rule. It's not unusual for any group, one ethnic group that's ruled by another, a greater power to, to rebel, not just the Jews, but the Jews. They want their independence. They wanted it then. There were zealots even among Jesus' group, uh, Simon the Zealot, not it was a different guy than Simon the Peter than Simon Peter. Why was he Z Simon the Zealot? Peter's a fisherman. Simon's a zealot. A zealot, somebody who is a part of this group who wants to overthrow Rome. Okay. They wanted to overthrow Rome even in that day, and they had tried to overthrow rulers before. That's when uh, the I think the Hashemonian dynasty and the Maccabees overthrew the rulers uh, that had come from Alexander the Great's line. And I always forget if it was, I think they were Seleucids. I think it was the Seleucids. Either Ptolemy or Seleucid. I never can remember. Is the P silent in Ptolemy? I don't know. One day I'm going to look that up. I've got it in a map on a textbook somewhere. I should know it. But I don't. And they, they, they successfully throw Rome out again before 70 AD in another revolt. But it does not go well for them. And this time when the Romans crushed the revolt in an effort to crush Judaism and that, that uniqueness they have, they destroy the temple. The Roman general Titus destroys their temple in 70 AD. So this comes to fulfillment, not only spiritually when Jesus is saying, you know, I'm the way to the truth of the light. No man comes to the Father except through me. Ah, don't wreck me. Didn't use a turn signal. Dodge Ram. Sorry. And now he's getting back over. What is wrong with you? So I was getting over in the right lane because I'm getting off on the exit to go to Dubs. That's in the far right lane. I'm getting in the middle lane. This guy drifts left into the middle lane. And then he gets back over after he almost wrecks me. Oh, some people. I'm trying to talk about Titus here. All right. So anyway, think of Jews who... Um, who haven't accepted Christ as the Messiah and how they'd long for the temple which was destroyed. 
Now, we, don't, we as Christians don't have to long for that temple because the Holy Spirit tabernacles in us. We relate to God the Father through God the Son. Like we, we know there's no need for that temple. Now, that being said, as, eschatologically speaking, like we can think about the temple in the millennial kingdom. We see, we see uh, prophecy about the temple in, in, say, the age to come. And I don't know how that relates. And when we have the holy city again uh, in the New Jerusalem, you know, why why is there another temple in the millennial kingdom? I don't know. But the temple was destroyed, and Jesus is telling them it's going to be destroyed, and it was about forty years later after he said this. And then starting in verse three, and we're into some tricky or difficult verses here coming up in Matthew 24. Starting in verse three, the disciples are going to ask him, you know, tell us about what's about to happen, the times to come. And we'll cover that, Lord willing, on Friday on the Christian commute. But for now, I'm going to go ahead and pause the show because I'm at a good stopping point. And when I come back, we'll deal with the question in the inbox. Oh, by, before I pause the show, do you have a question about Christian theology and apologetics? If you do, send it to SethDunn88 at gmail.com or dial 470-315-0875. The Christian Commute is your theological roadside assistance. One came in over the weekend, so I, I have enough. I think I got one or two. I don't remember. I know I have at least one that came in over the weekend that I can use to get me through Friday. But if we want to have a full show Monday, somebody's going to have to step up and send a question. Surely somebody has a question about Christian theology and apologetics. I hope you do. But I have a question, and it's what am I going to order at Dubs High on the Hawk Barbecue? And I have about two minutes to decide. Well, longer than that because i got to go through downtown Calhoun. Anyway, here comes the pause of the show, and when we come back, we will finish. All right, I'm back. And in case anybody is wondering... I got the mayor's chicken, which comes with a salad and a, a baked potato. I don't know why they call it mayor's chicken. Maybe one day I'll ask. But it's just grilled chicken breasts. So, I also <coughs> quickly stopped into a car wash because my Kia Soul was really super dirty because I park under a tree. You know what I'm going to do this weekend? I bought a new pole saw at Home Depot last month. I might... I might prune that tree. Anyway, here comes the pause. Because I got my sweet tea in a styrofoam cup. Half sweet, half unsweet tea. In a styrofoam cup. Now let's go to the question. It is James from West Virginia. Oh, and speaking of sweet tea. James claims to be from the part of West Virginia that drinks sweet tea. Here's a favorite story of mine I like to tell. I don't know if I've ever liked, if I've ever told it on the podcast before, or at least this part of it. I went on a church youth group ski trip to Winter Place, West Virginia. Winter Place, West Virginia. This would have been in, I think, 19, either 98 or 99. I can't remember if I was a junior or a senior. Winter Place, West Virginia, with Tabernacle Baptist Church, and it was a long way to drive from Cartersville, and we stopped in eight, and I think we stopped at a Texas roadhouse. So just imagine the difference between the the poor, hard scrabble church in Roman times and a bunch of kids from a nice neighborhood taking a bus to go skiing at a. Uh, Uh, I'm sorry. I was looking for something. I'm sorry. I was looking for something in my car, and now I can't find it. So a bunch of kids going to be skiing in a bus, and they stop and eat at Texas Roadhouse along the way. I, being a well-traveled young man, by the time I was 16, I'd been to Europe, Utah, Washington State. I think I'd been to California, Idaho, all these different places. I'd been everywhere. I've been everywhere, man. I've been north, south, east, and west. Well-traveled young man that I am in West Virginia. I knew where I was. I ordered a Coke. And Mark Harrell, sitting next to me, ordered a sweet tea. And the waitress said, we don't have that. 
And he looked at me funny and looked at her funny. I'm like, Mark, do you understand why West Virginia exists? And I explained to him that we were no longer in the South. We were in Yankee, West Virginia, who split from Virginia because they wanted to stay with the North. And it didn't surprise me at all that they didn't have sweet tea. So, James, you claim to be from the, uh, the sweet tea part of West Virginia? <laughs> Maybe such a part exists. I don't know. But to me, West Virginians are Yankees who drink unsweet tea. And they call Coke pop. As all Yankees do. Actually, I think the further north you go, Coke becomes soda. And pop is more Midwestern. But people from Kentucky call it pop. So here's a question from West Virginia about Israel. James asks... What do you think of people who go to Israel and get rebaptized in the Sea of Galilee? I wonder if he means Jordan River. I've always heard of people going to Israel and getting rebaptized in the Jordan River because that's where Jesus was baptized. I, I don't know if anybody gets baptized in the Sea of Galilee, uh, but it wouldn't put me past some tourists to want to get baptized in the Sea of Galilee. So what do I think of that? I think it's bad. When you go and get rebaptized because you're on a trip to Israel, you are minimizing a church ordinance. Baptism means something. You know, we as low church people, as Baptists, you know, communion doesn't save us, baptism doesn't save us, and I think because it doesn't, we tend not to put an emphasis on its importance. But these are church uh, church ordinances. They're important. They, they, they should be done right. You're not going to go to hell for getting rebaptized. But you, sh you shouldn't do it. So let's talk, before I talk about why I have a problem with it, let's talk about what baptism is. So baptism is a symbol of your public profession. It is a public profession which symbolizes, I should say, Christ's death burial and resurrection and your identification with Christ in his death burial and resurrection and it's publicly done in front of the church as a church ordinance now I don't care if it's done in a river done in a river a creek a lake the ocean a swimming pool or a baptistry in a church building but it needs to be done as, as a part of the church with a gathered church as a church ordinance and you do it once. There's no significance to a bunch of rebaptisms. Allow me a quick rabbit trail, James. There is a an organization called WinShape, and it was found. It was founded by Chick Fil A money. WinShape. I think the Kathys founded it, and they have Camp WinShape for kids. And they appoint at Camp Windshape camp pastors, which aggravates me to no end because there's no such thing as a camp pastor. There's a camp counselor. You're just, you're a kid, and they're not even. You have these people. You're a camp counselor. No, you're not. You're a teenage babysitter getting paid twenty bucks an hour at summer camp. So they belittle the church so much as to name some kid a camp. Pastor. I wonder if they make the female camp counselors camp pastors. Not only that, there's a marriage retreat for Windshape. This is one of those things that your pastor gets to go to for free or at a discount, and then he comes back to you and tells you how great it is. So people who have trouble in their marriages go to the Windshape retreat for like a marriage refresher or something like that. And you got to imagine these are people a lot of times having real problems there's maybe adultery or some kind of lying involved. I mean, people who are at the brink of divorce and they'll go up there to get their marriage back together and they want to forgive one another. And what they'll do up there is they'll get baptized as if we're renewing our marriage, we're recommitting to our marriage, we're washing our marriage clean, and they'll baptize people up there. And I hear about that and it torques me out of shape so bad because... That's a church ordinance. 
quit making it a symbol for what you want it to be. Church ordinances matter. They're important and they need to be done right. Good, good grief, there's only two of them. Can we not do them right? So here's what will happen. You'll get some, some Baptist man or woman. Let's just say it's a woman. She makes profession when she's 16 years old. She gets saved. She gets baptized in front of her church. She lives her life. And then when she's 40, she tells her husband, I've always wanted to go to the Holy Land. And Pastor so-and-so has said that we're taking a church trip to the Holy Land. Let's fork out $4,000 a piece and we'll go. And we'll get to go with Pastor so-and-so. Okay? And by the way, the way this works is some tourism company who specializes in trips to the Holy Land and they, they make money by buying up hotel rooms and transportation. They're getting a volume discount. Then they sell it to you. And they find pa pastors of local churches. And they say, if you lead a trip to the Holy Land, we'll give you and your wife a free trip to Israel. You just need to bring 20 people. And then you'll see, oh, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You'll see pulpit time given to this. Oh, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You need to go, and we get to go with Pastor So-and-so, who's an expert. Like, he ain't an expert. What is he? An Israel, is it Israelologist? Hebrewologist? He, he took Hebrew in seminary. He don't know nothing. All right? Let me tell you something. I took Old Testament or Biblical Geography in seminary, Greek and Hebrew. That's what your pastor took, Okay? That does not make me or him an expert in tourism in the Middle East. Anyway, I'm rabbit trailing all over the place. But what happens when that lady takes her once-in-a-lifetime trip, they pull up to the Jordan River and they say, Look, here's the Jordan River. This is where Jesus was baptized. And they say, who wants to get baptized in the Jordan River? And you think, I'm going to get baptized by my pastor in the Jordan River. And the bigger celebrity he is, the bigger a deal it is. Oh my gosh, Johnny Hunt is going to baptize me in the Jordan River. Wow. No, lady, you already got baptized when you are 16, 17 years old. You've already identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And you've been living a Christian life for 24 years you've been baptized you don't need to get baptized again what you're doing is belittling a church ordinance by turning it into a tourist activity like if I go to Boston to go park my car in Harvard Yard and say look I parked my car in Harvard Yard and didn't say my R's I'm going to go to Philadelphia and get a cheesesteak I'm going to go to Wrigley Field, sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game, get a deep dish pizza, and throw a home run ball back. I'm going to go to Yellowstone and see Old Faithful. There's, there's all kind of things and all kind of places which are associated with tourist activity. How dare you turn a church ordinance into a tourist activity? And it's pastoral malpractice for the pastors who do it. Your baptism experience that you got when you got saved doesn't need to be topped or trumped as a tourist activity. Don't belittle that and belittle your church by getting baptized as a tourist. There's nothing special about the, the water and the Jordan River. It ain't magic. It doesn't renew you. Baptism, it's symbolism. You say, my sins have been washed away. Yeah, once and for all. You don't need to keep doing this stuff. By the way, the people who believe in salvation by works and synergistic salvation, like the Roman Catholic Church, you have to keep doing the sacraments over and over and over and over. They only get baptized once, but then they got to do, oh, I got to do confession and penance over and over and over and over. It's an outrage. Now that you asked, James, it is an outrage. Even more so than your state's betrayal of the South. It is an outrage that people go to Israel and get rebaptized in the Jordan River or apparently the Sea of Galilee. By the way, the earliest Baptists were murdered, killed off in droves 
And because they did what? Quote unquote rebaptized. They were pejoratively called rebaptizers because the original Baptists, and I don't want to say the original Baptists because the original Baptists are in the book of Acts, trail of blood, baby. No, seriously. The, the Baptists who came along during the Reformation, so starting with the Swiss Brethren, because the Reformation was all about rediscovering biblical doctrine after it was perverted and hidden by ignorance and the Roman Catholic Church. People started to figure out, oh, we're not saved by works. We're, we're saved through faith, uh, saved by grace through faith alone. And then people started to figure out, huh, baptizing infants is not what they did in the Bible. It doesn't make any sense. We should be get, getting baptized as professed believers. So they, the early Baptists, say the 1600s, were scornfully referred to as rebaptizers because they had supposedly already been baptized as infants. But they said, no, we weren't ever really truly baptized. <laughs> so believers' baptism, given that it's a church ordinance, given what the Bible teaches about it, and given the history of rebaptism, quote-unquote rebaptism, that people died to get baptized the right way, and you're out on your tourist trip to, to the Holy Land, getting rebaptized in the Jordan River by your celebrity pastor, Duh! That's what I think about it, James. And any pastor who participates in that should be rebuked. Just like any church member who goes down to Camp Windshape or Windshape Marriage Retreat and gets baptized should be rebuked for belittling a church ordinance. Easy for you to say, Seth. You've never been what they've been through in their marriage. Listen, I'm glad people are getting their marriages back on track. I really am. Keep my, keep my religion out of it. Baptism. My, keep my church ordinances out of it, I should say. And don't, don't keep my religion out of it because <laughs> my religion is how people stay together in marriages because God hates divorce. All right. Let's talk about my new series, Grave to Cradle. Church membership as account management. You guys are going to see where I'm going with this. Does your church treat you more like a client than a member in how it deals with you? And you're going to see this a lot in the modern church. Does your church have a board of elders? And one, maybe he's the teaching pastor. Or does your church have a blue million pastors invented in the 70s? Depending on the size of your church, it goes like this. Preschool director. Children's minister or director. If it's a man, he's called the children's pastor. Youth pastor or youth director, depending on if it's a man or a woman. A woman. The bigger the church, you might have a middle school pastor and a high school pastor. Moving on. This is for real big churches. Pastor of young adults. You'll hear this sometimes called college and career. These are 20-year-old people who have not gotten married yet. These also coincide, or sorry, correspond. These also correspond to Sunday school age groups, Sunday school classes. The next group you have are your young marrieds. Young marrieds. These are people who just got married. Their kids maybe two or three years old. They may go from the uh, mid twenties to early forties. Now you're starting to think advertising demos. Eighteen to thirty-five year old demographic. I'm not thinking. I'm drinking my tea. And then. No and then. And then. You have your middle-aged people. I forget what they call the middle-aged people. Empty nesters. You have your uh, parents of adult children. Middle-aged type people. They could be called various things. These are your, your middle-aged people. Their kids are adults. They're no longer taken care of. And finally, you have your golden years or classic adults, senior adults, and you'll have a pastor for that. And you may also have a pastoral care pastor, the guy who visits the shut-ins. He's basically the pastor to the really old and infirm. All of these are age groups and all of these are demographics. You can find these same demographics at the ad agency. 
okay? They're advertising Ninja Turtles to young people so their parents in a different demographic, a demographic with money, buys the cereal and action figures. Old people are being advertised. William Devane is trying to sell them a reverse mortgage. Wilford Brimley is warning them about diabetes. And they got Liberty Medical and they have uh, somebody trying to sell them life insurance even though like they're going to die. Like why would you sell old people life insurance? Like they're trying to sell them crappy life insurance. Or they're trying to sell them the Gerber life ex- insurance so they can buy on those gra- grandbabies. Or buy gold. That's that's what basically turn on Fox News and see what the advertisements are. That's the older demographic. Turn on wrestling, WWE or AEW. That's the 18 to 35. Also, um, you're going to hit the 18 to 35. Watch ESPN. Watch SEC football. You're going to see video games to the 18 to 35s, and then you're going to see. Pacific Life mutual funds and retirement funds to to the 35 36 to 50 I don't know. And I just want you to understand these demos are not in scripture. They're just a part of our society. Now, is there instruction in scripture as to how young people should act? Yes. To how old people should act? Yes, there is. There actually is. Because people really are in different stages of life. But is there the idea in Scripture that you have a, a different pastor for those people? Different age group, Sunday school groups for those people? No, that's not in Scripture. That's sort of a modern invention. And here it is. It says the, the church is a business model in which the church members are clients. Clients, not sheep. Now, not customers. Does anybody know the difference? I don't know if I've ever talked about it on here before, between a customer and a client. And it can be subtle. I went to Kroger today and bought some eye drops. I'm a customer at Kroger. I go and I make individual transactions. And sometimes I go to Ingalls and sometimes I go to Publix. Yes, there's repeat business, but there's no one there at Kroger really managing my business. They email me coupons. I'm signed up for the Kroger Plus card, just like I've got an Ingalls card. But I'm a customer there. I'm going to make transactions that may or may not become repeat business. I am a client at my doctor's office because I go there for a scheduled time and see the same doctor every time. I'm my therapist. I'm a client of hers. Usually, your doctor, your lawyer, and your accountant uh, are—they have clients. You're their client, but you go to the store. You're a customer, right? And businesses like clients, not customers. Because repeat business is better. It is more expensive, as I've said many times before on this podcast, it's more expensive to get a new customer than it is to retain an old one. So what you have in the business world is you have salesmen. And salesmen are the people who are out there to make that first sale. Yes, they want client relationships too, but they're out there breaking the ice. Once a salesman, and this goes for any company, once a salesman gets a customer to become a client, then you're going to have account reps, account managers, and customer service representatives, sometimes called CSRs, who cater to that client. If that client has a problem, you don't want them calling the salesman. You want the salesman out making new sales. You want them calling the CSR. And the CSR is going to tell them where their order is, why it's late, why it's early. If there's a quality problem, they're going to try to resolve it. And those CSRs are sitting there paying for themselves by retaining those clients. When I was at Field Turf, there was one CSR in the office for the landscape division, and her office was next to mine. So I am the cold, heartless accountant in my office, making spreadsheets of people, cutting people out of the spreadsheets along with their children, hopes, dreams, and aspirations. And she's dealing with the people. And she was good at it. This particular girl's name was Sarah. She, if you ever met her, 
you'd feel like I feel really at ease around this person. Some people are just like that, where you're just at ease around them. They're just super easy people to be around. They're friendly. You're not on your guard. Just like, wow, this person is is just, I don't know how to explain it. This is a personality type. You just like to be around people like that. And people would call her, and they would be upset because we were selling a luxury product. Guys, landscape turf is a luxury product. It's really expensive. And there's reality, and then there's her perception. All right? And when you're buying a, a luxury product, your perception may be greater than the reality. You may think there's something wrong with your turf, but it meets the spec, and it was installed correctly. Or even worse, it didn't meet the spec, and it wasn't installed correctly, and you got a real problem for your luxury product. So she is ameliorating people, and you could hear her, and I could sit here and listen to her in the other office, her voice and how she dealt with very difficult people. That's what CSRs do. Salesmen are dealing with a neutral relationship. They're trying to win your business. The CSRs are trying to keep it, broadly speaking. And they all only care about your money, because that's what they're in the business of doing. Now... Think about that in terms of your big church, all right? I'm not talking about your little church with one pastor. Think about it in terms of your big church, your mick churches out there. Maybe you're in a mick church. The senior pastor, who you never been to his house, he's never been to your house. You had a baby, you didn't see him until he dedicated your baby on baby dedication day. That senior pastor, who probably doesn't know your middle name, I'm just kidding. He knows your middle name because they have CF, CSR. Uh, they have uh, CRM software on their phone. I'm not kidding. And they have your, They know your anniversary, your birthday. They before they visit you, modern day pastors, they'll whip out that phone and say, "All right, refresh me," because they got 700 church members or 2,000 church members. Anyway, that pastor who you never meet, his job is to make you feel like he's your pastor. But he's really the salesman who's selling you on the church. His sermon is designed to sell you on joining the church and even sell you into volunteering at the church. Join and volunteer. Join and volunteer. Join and volunteer. You think, well, no, he's making a gospel presentation. Okay. But really, you're getting sold on the church. He's the one encouraging people to go out and sort of as a sales manager and all the other little under pastors are under him to go out and grow, grow, grow through the various channels. And now that you've joined or become a regular attender, you know, your number's in the in the mass text thing, they've gotta they've gotta put you somewhere. Because you're coming in as a 60-year-old, you're coming in as a 20-year-old, you're coming in as a 5-year-old. Everybody comes into church at a different age. How's the 5-year-old come in there? Well, his parents took him. He didn't choose to be there. How does the 60-year-old come in there? Well, either the, the, he got he started and he was 5 because his parents took him, or he's moved. Generally speaking, when old people are joining your church, they've moved. Maybe they've moved to be closer to their family. Uh, maybe you know they retired to someplace more hospitable, uh, with a more hospitable climate, or less crowded. That's generally where the older people come in, who are new, not the people who've always been there. Young people are, of course, born. They come in through the nursery. And everybody is related to, in a different way, based on their stage of life. And that's where the concept comes in of your age group pastor as a CSR. The senior pastor has sold you, and now the CSRs are keeping you. If there's some issue, there's probably somebody below the senior pastor that you go to first. The education pastor, the associate pastor, you know, if you're the youth pastor... I mean, like, who do you go to? Like, well, my kids are bored at church. All right, let me go talk to the youth pastor about how we need more pizza parties. And when you're born into it, you really don't even notice because it's just how things are. Like, think about it. If you go to a church website 
And, I mean, when I was when I was little, there was who went to a church website. If I want to know something about a church, I just go to the website. That's what I do. We know website thirty years ago for a church, maybe a little one. I mean, give me a break. Like now, you go to a church website and you expect to see. This is when we meet. This is what we believe. These are our ministries, what we do in uh, our community. And here's our staff. Here's who works here. And at the bare minimum, you expect to see a pastor. But you really expect to see a team of pastors, don't you? So here's the education pastor. Here's the associate pastor. Here's a youth pastor. Here's a picture of him and his smiling family. And here's their bio. To some degree, you see this at all churches. And a lot of times you go to a church website nowadays, and it's a video, right? You go to the webpage, and there's things to click on, but the background is a video, and it's switching from the, the, the music going on to there's the pastor preaching, and then there's some people standing in the lobby, and then, you know, there's kids shooting Nerf guns at one another. I mean, there's just all, look at all the fun we're having at our church. Almost every church website I go to has that. Now, they pay a lot of money for that. And when you're born into that, like this is just how it's always been since I started going to church and I was alive, you don't think about, well, when did this start? I got to tell you, it didn't start at Pentecost. All of this has to do not with your pastoral care, but with growing and maintaining numbers at the church. And that's why you have people who are in in title, pastors, ministers, directors, whatever you call it. I always love director because I'm a director. I'm a director. I don't get to direct any people. I'm just a, I'm a director of, of financial planning and analysis. Which, I mean, those are... Those aren't even concrete things. They're conceptual. They're abstract. I don't even get to direct any. I don't get to direct manufacturing. I'm director of manufacturing. I got people who work for me. I don't want. I don't listen. I don't want anybody working for me. I like my job, but I'm a, I'm a director. I know a lot of other directors. There's a director in the office next to me. He's a director. I sit next to the director of financial systems. We we sit there and we direct all the finances. And that's why I always love it when they call these church people directors. I'm like, you're, you're not even trying to pretend that it's not business related. Like, could you call them a minister? And I'll tell you why they don't. Because a lot of them are women and they don't want to call a woman a minister. So like, that's a pastor. Like, no, no, no. It's a minister. It's a minister, not a pastor. And like, what is this director's job? Well, they oversee the children's ministry. Okay, so this woman director oversees the children's ministry. Doesn't that make her a minister? No, no, no. (laughs) That would imply that she's a pastor. She's a director. Let me tell you something. I'm not in the ministry of financial planning and analytics. Although I do view my holy my spreadsheets as holy. Don't you dare touch my spreadsheet. Send somebody a spreadsheet. Let me tell you something. You know what's worse than rebaptizing somebody in the Jordan River? If I send you a spreadsheet and it has a formula in it, in the cell, there's a reason that formula is there. It's calling other dynamic numbers and formulas from other parts of the spreadsheet. And when you type something over my formula, you just ruin my spreadsheet. Thanks. Anyway, I'm a director. Don't type over my stuff. But I like it when they call them directors because it's like, all right, this is clearly a business. This is clearly a business model. So we're going to talk about, over the next few podcasts, starting with the old people, how they are related to, as customers... And what their value is, one, biblically to the church, conceptually, but two, logistically and monetarily to the church run as a business. So that's, that's, the, that's coming up. Stay tuned. Grave to cradle, your church account rep. Grave to cradle... Your church account rep. Thank you so much 
for listening to the Christian Commute. As always, God bless. And as always, remember, Christianity is not about getting saved. It's about being saved. Before I end the show, may I implore you, if you haven't already, to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to call upon His name, to repent of your sins. Your sins separate you from God. And you will die and go to hell forever unless you repent and turn to Christ, the only Savior made available to us by God the Father. That's it. And we're all going to die. Like, you're going to die no matter what. Dying and going to hell forever is another thing. God has made a way for salvation. And if you get saved, He has for you planned since the foundation of the world, so says Ephesians, a bunch of good works for you to do. It is by grace you have been saved, and this through faith, lest no one should boast. Going on, God has prepared for you from the foundation of the world good works to do. So, if you listen to this and you haven't got saved, me sitting here telling how the modern church or some modern churches are more like business, you might say, yeah, I knew that. I noticed that. Yeah, you're, you're, you noticed it. Good for you. You're real perceptive. You see how they're scamming people. You're going to die and go to hell. Get saved. And if you are saved, since Christianity is not about getting saved, it's about being saved, go fix whatever needs fixing. Could it be that that is one of the good works God has stored up for you and planned for you to do before the salvation of the world is to go stop your church from hiring pastors for shills for the convention and paid by KPIs and growth number statistics and who keep those numbers and statistics up by playing a bunch of garbage music and inviting kids to play Nintendo and foosball and have pizza parties so their parents will want them to come to uh, will they'll want to come to church and their parents will come with them with their money. Christianity is not about getting saved. It's about being saved. God bless. Lord willing, I'll be back with you again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute and send me some Thanks questions. Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Please send your questions about Christian apologetics and theology to sethdunn88 at gmail.com If you are not a Christian, please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.